Some of you um, will know of this character here, Punchinello. He's the creation of the American author and pastor, a guy called Max Lucado. He is a Wemmick. He is a small wooden person created and crafted by the woodcarver Eli, and he lives in a place called Wemmicksville with all kinds of other little Wemmicks. Colourful wooden people, some who wear hats, some without, some who are tall, some who are small, some who are big, some who are not. We, we have three books in the series with Punchinello, and currently Josh is particularly enjoying them, captivated by them. We read them every night, and the general premise behind each story is basically the same, and that is that the Wemmicks compare and compete and divide in some way before Punchinello, who, as you can see, is not very impressive at all, comes to his senses, heads up the hill to Eli, the woodcarver's house, and spends time with his maker, remembers who he is, and remembers what really matters. So in one book, it's a time of, of, of stickers, of gold stars and grey dots. You can see him here, covered in grey dots. Everyone is giving each other stickers. If you do something good or clever or impressive, then someone will stick a gold star on you. If you do something stupid or silly, then you'll get a grey dot. Punchinello? Well, you can see he's covered in grey dots. He just can't help it. He keeps doing stuff wrong. and the dots, the dots stick and the dots stay. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell and the others around him would give him grey dots. And sometimes when he fell, his wood would get scratched so they'd give him more grey dots. And then he would try to explain why he had fallen and he would say something silly and get more grey dots. In another book, it's about collecting boxes and balls, and the bigger the pile of stuff that you have, the taller your tower of boxes and balls, the more impressive you are, the more respected you are, the more people will admire you. And so, as everyone does all that they can to get as many boxes and balls, Punchinello sells his bed and his house just to have the biggest pile of boxes and balls. In another book, it's to do with Eli the woodcarver, what wood he has made to create you. If you're maple, you're special. If you're pine, you're not bad. If you're oak, you're okay. If, like Punchinello, you're, you're willow, then you're bendy and weak, disregarded by everyone. And each book is beautifully predictable because it will end with Punch coming to his senses. He's been sidelined, looked down upon, confused, but he remembers to go and see Eli. Remember who he is, recalibrating life. He learns it doesn't really matter if you're covered in grey dots or gold stars because it matters more what your creator thinks of you. It doesn't matter if you've got an impressive pile of boxes and balls because he loves you regardless. It doesn't matter whether you're made of bendy, weak willow because maybe he had a plan for that. As Punchinello saves someone from the river because nobody else can. Of course, not just a lesson for six-year-olds, is it? There's this inbuilt tendency in us to compare and to rank and to find our, our worth and our value and security away from our maker. I remember I first came across these books um, hearing from how a youth worker had, had gone into a big, large, mixed secondary school in London tough place, and he had done an assembly for them and, and told them the story of the, the dots and the stars. And afterwards, in the corridor, he overhears two girls talking to each other. 
talking about his assembly and saying how incredible that kind of a world would be. A world of acceptance, a world where there's no one-upmanship, where, where we don't have to try and keep seeking to impress others, where there are no grey dots and gold stars. You could be yourself. Because it's our world, isn't it? Isn't that your week? And then our experience, these two girls saw it and they were a part of it and they hated it. And I know school can be very difficult. But in a world of insecurity where we do stuff wrong or silly, or people look down on us or where we so easily care what others make of us, we feel so small. And so easily our value and our self-worth depends on our performance and the kind of week we've had and whether we are hitting the targets that we've set for ourselves. Different targets for each of us. Different things matter for each of us. And so this week as we're thinking in this little series about what it means to be made in God's image, we're just going to scratch the surface and think about where our value comes from as people and where the world around us so often gets that skewed. But also where our value comes from as Christians and where we so easily get that skewed. Before we jump in, though, just a bit of a a recap from last week. I know some people were still away on Christmas holes and... We're thinking about dignity. We're thinking about where our value and our worth comes from, what it means to be made in God's image. And there's going to be some overlap from this week and last week. But in a nutshell, we said last week that Western society has has done away with God and is doing away with God. And there's this profound confusion as to where we locate our dignity. Where should it come from? We said historically the West was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, meaning that individuals, regardless of of age or intelligence or or social rank or or skin color or how many gray dots or golden stars we have, people have worth, had value, had dignity because of our Judeo-Christian foundation. And we saw that that was a good thing. Many see that as a good thing. We quoted a guy called Luke Ferry, an atheist philosopher from France last week. I thought this time another one, another quotation for you. Here's someone from, there we go, a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, very high-powered atheist thinkers in China. They say this, one of the things we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West all over the world. We studied everything we could from the historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West is so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism, and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. And you see, because, because of the foundation of entire societies upon God, upon the fact that individuals are valued because they're made in his image, and that's seen as a great thing, and, and innate value and dignity and worth that comes from the outside rather than having to be earned, And yet we said, what's happening is as the West does away with God, so like a cut flower, we're beginning to wilt. 
there's confusion. Why are people valuable? Is everybody the same? Are we all equally as valuable as each other? We, we see it in the news. It's full of it. Whether it be some examples from last week, some do not resuscitate orders on Down syndrome patients. Planned Parenthood stories in the US. Whether we should welcome refugees. Whether black lives do matter. These are live stories in the news this last week. And we said, the interesting thing that's happening is that people are finding dignity or looking for dignity not in being made in God's image, in doing the task that he's given us, ruling creation under him, but rather in snatching that authority from him, wanting to, to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Wanting to make calls on, on life or marriage or gender or any of the hot topics of our day. We're rewriting the laws, rewriting Genesis 1 and 2. We want to be gods. And woe betide anyone who challenges that. Suddenly we find our tolerant society is, is not quite so tolerant after all. And without God, how do you know if somebody is valuable? Let's open our Bibles and see. Turn with me, if you've lost it, to Psalm 8. And we'll see initially that the value of humanity comes from our creation. I'm going to read Psalm 8 again for us. Psalm 8 for the director of music, according to Gittith, a Psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and, and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all, the swim, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you see, whether we would call ourselves a believer or not, here, the Bible says, is the beginning of a healthy understanding of a healthy self-image. It's got nothing to do with our abilities or our brains or our strength or the job title or the size of our pay packets or our age or family or social status or ethnic background or country we come from. Nothing about grey dots and golden stars. Our foundational value, whoever we are, says David as he reflects on Genesis 1 in Psalm 8, comes from being made in the image of God. Do you see, God is the creator of all, the moon and the stars, verse 3. and It's not even just that God is mindful of us or cares for us, verse 4. No, together we have been crowned with glory and honor and together given a position of ruling, verse 6. Do you remember the word from last week? You impressed your friends at dinner parties. It's vice-garant. It means we have a delegated authority from him to rule over the works of his hands the flocks and the herds and all of creation. 
We said last week that being made in God's image means responsibility and it means relationships. Here we see the responsibility. And so David, quite rightly, is, is pouring out his heart to God. This incredible privilege, it's not been earned. It's not a place for pride, it's a time of praise for David. Humble praise. Imagine this, it's obviously entirely hypothetical, but imagine you spent hours with your kids making the best Lego city creation the world has ever known. Just imagine it. You've, you've surpassed your, sorry, they've surpassed themselves. The glory, the detail, the beauty, the design is amazing. There are houses and shops and cars and cats sleeping on dustbins and traffic lights and grannies crossing roads, a little park, people playing football, there are people walking dogs. It's taken ages. It's amazing. Beautiful. Would you then hand it over to your kids with their sticky little fingers to play with it? To do what they want with it? To, to ruin it, probably? I very much doubt it. That's exactly what God does with us. Except it's infinitely more because actually he made us, we are part of his creation. It's as if he's leaving it in the hands of Lego figures to, to run it and to ruin it. It's not a time for, for pride, it's a time for praise. Some of you will have heard of a guy called Graham Bynum. He did a weekend away for Morden Road a number of years ago. In his little short book on self-image, he, he lists a few very interesting responses of people he, whom he knows as they read Psalm 8 for themselves, as they consider the importance of Psalm 8. Let me just quote a few for you. Someone says, I feel a little shallow for not having thought about this before and a bit self-obsessed to have left God out of the self-image equation. Someone else says, this makes me feel I'm not actually as rubbish as I sometimes think I am. I need to, be, I need to remember the specialness of being in God's image. I should feel more amazed at this. I tend to compare myself to others rather than realizing what God thinks of me in making me in his image. This is interesting, this one. This makes my outward appearance and flaws less important as we have been wonderfully made. This last one, I'm, I'm overwhelmed that God would bother with me or humanity at all, let alone to bestow us with something of himself. I wonder, as you have Psalm 8 in front of you on your laps, how do you respond to it? Is this a new thing for you to to let this idea of, of an innate value and worth that comes from God daily affect your self-worth and your self-image, how you feel about yourself? Does it challenges our insecurities? Or do you find it too easily just to think about grey dots and golden stars? If you get stuff wrong, if you have a bad day, if you fail the exam, if you get demoted at work, if you're unemployed or your body is slowing and you can't serve as you would like or if your if your sermon bombs a place like oxford it, it's very easy to feel like we're covered in gray dots however high up the ladder we consider ourselves to be but psalm 8 says to you and it says to me don't don't swallow the lie regardless of your performance you have a worth because God has made you in his image. Because he's crowned you with glory and honor and given you a job under him in his world. 
And whatever the week we've had, and however life is at the moment, and wherever we come from, and whoever we are, there is a humble dignity that comes from that fact. Something intrinsic to being human. To be honest, it's it's affected me these last few weeks as I've thought about preparing for these things. I think it affects particularly how I see others in the everyday. How I think about other people at the school gates. People in the supermarket queue shouting at their children. Or the annoying kids on the bus. Or wherever it is for you. It's challenged me to value them because they have a value from God. But as we know, the problem is humanity has walked out on God. We've turned our backs on him. We've chosen to go it alone. We've done away with him. We've sought to leave behind the one whom we image. And so we sin. And as we sin, it's as if we have this portrait of ourselves in his image and and we willingly crumple it up and tear it up. And God, I don't want to be the person that you've made to be me to be living under your authority, doing the jobs that you call me to do with responsibilities and relationships as you've designed them. Rather than the humble dignity of praise of Psalm 8, that there's pride and division and brokenness and the world's a mess. Which leads us to our next passage. And there we find good news. There are lots of places we could have gone for this. But I just want us to look at one verse in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I'll put it on the screen in a second. But you'll see, I think it encapsulates so much of this new identity that we have and where our value comes from as Christians. There's, there's, if you like, there's not just worth and value in our creation in the first Adam, but also in our recreation in the second Adam in Christ. Let me read Galatians 2, verse 20 for us. Paul writes this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in a culture and a society which is all about self, self self-sufficiency, self-worth, self-everything, this is a very very offensive verse in lots of ways. It, It grates with the mentality of our age, with the culture in which we swim. Why? Well, notice firstly how it ends. And you see how God deals with the problem of our sin. Do you see? He gave himself for me which is humbling. It's shorthand for Paul saying that his son sacrifices himself for his people. And that's offensive because it means we can never deal with our own sin. No amount of good behavior or pulling up our moral socks could ever deal with our pride and our rebellion and our walking out on God. We're utterly helpless to help ourselves. We needed him to do something. And so he gives himself for his people dying in their place, taking the righteous anger of the Father upon himself for us. Why did he do it? You see, because he loved me. Not extraordinary, it was one of his. He loves you. He loves you. 
As you look at the cross, as you sing of the cross, know that you are profoundly loved. As we take bread and wine in a moment in the Lord's Supper, know that you are profoundly loved. But notice as well with me what this verse says about our concept of self, and and it is more offensive. Paul says you're dead. You have been crucified with Christ. The old you has gone. When, When he died on the Friday, you died with him. You are forever dead as to your old self. (laughs) Maybe we're thinking, well, that doesn't sound like great news to me. It doesn't really help with my my concept of self-worth. I was expecting more of a kind of huggy verse, telling me it would be okay, really. And it does certainly fly in the face of much modern counseling and therapy that essentially says you're not that bad, really. I don't think Paul would agree. He would say to us, Christian, you want to deal with your problems of self-image and your value and your insecurities and how you view yourself. Don't be tempted to minimize the depths of your sin, the reality of your sin, the reality of our hearts. But know that you're amazingly loved. Not because of your loveliness, because you look friendly, but frankly, you're not lovely. We know what our hearts are like, don't we? We know the reality of our selfishness and our sin and our pride. He loves us because he is a God who loves. Your love despite your sin. Your love to the extent that he would give himself for you. His body would be broken for you. His blood shed for you. But it's not just that you're dead either. It's not just that you've been crucified with Christ on the Friday. No, you've been raised again with him on the Sunday. Raised to new life. As you, as you trust in him, so you have been raised with him. And so he lives in you. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Which means every day we're still living here in these bodies of flesh with these personalities and likes and dislikes and the messiness of life. We go to work, we change nappies, we make packed lunches, we sit in traffic jams, we get grumpy with traffic lights, we we watch TV, we play sport, we we cook and we eat and we wash up and we compare ourselves with other people and we feel like we're covered in dots or stars, we're giving them to other people. We're, We're competing with people. We come to church and every day in these bodies, And this flesh is a day of faith, though. It's a day of new life. Because you've been raised with him on the Sunday. Because you are in him. Because you're a new person, daily living by faith in him. Remembering who you are now. That the old has gone, that the new has come. But it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time, does it? The problem is we forget it. We have this truth amnesia. We forget we're created in God's image, and other people are too. We, we forget that we've been crucified with Christ. We forget that we have new life in him. We forget that our daily lives are lived by faith in him. And we drift back to the old way of doing stuff. And so then all too easily, our knee-jerk reaction when someone's doing better than us is, 
Maybe we've lost our job or we've dropped from the team or we haven't hit those targets that we wanted in our life or they've got better behaved kids than us or a tidier house than us or we're not performing as we want to and we feel small and unworthy and less valuable, insecure. We think we've got grey tots and we feel rubbish. We forget we're profoundly loved by the Son of God who gave himself for us. Or maybe, sadly, it's the other way around. We're doing okay. Got better grades. We've got the promotion. We're, we're prettier. We're faster. We're leading a better Bible study than them. We're sticking with our New Year's resolutions longer than they are. And we give them grey dots. And I know it's easier said than done, but do you see how a verse like this changes changes how we shouldn't look for our worth and our value in our performance, but in who we are now in Christ, in that we're profoundly loved by him, in that we've been raised with him. We are new people. The danger then is that we go, well, then I must go to Christ and I must find my value and my identity in him. And I think that's almost right. But maybe it's better this, as a friend puts it, I ought to go to Christ and I must lose my value and my identity in him. It's a subtle difference, but do you see, as soon as we go to him wanting something from him, in a sense, we're still at the center. We're still captivated by ourselves. We're still serving ourselves. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. So we don't just go to Christ to get what we want, a meaning or value or purpose or personality, as Lewis puts it. Otherwise, it's still just about us. And we're still at the center. And Jesus becomes a means to an end. Of course, part of the irony is that because of our Judeo-Christian foundations and the focus on the individual, which is a good thing, we've turned that to being all about self and everything must serve me. So there's a huge irony there. And I know this is countercultural. And I know it's almost invisible, but the air that we breathe is a culture of self-love and performance, and our hearts are those that love to perform and impress others. But we're in the same boat. And we're in the same boat, which means we can be really honest about our sin and our brokenness and our failures and our insecurities and where our value and worth is being found. And when we get it wrong... And because we're in the same boat, we don't have to shift the blame onto others. We don't have to be defensive or self-justifying or comparing ourselves with others. And do be assured, this is me preaching to myself as well, because us preachers are very bad at this. But let me urge you to begin to deal with your own heart. To begin to examine your motives and your attitudes and your insecurities and where you're finding your value and worth, where you naturally go to them day by day. I heard of someone recently, very honestly, who said that they're fearful of believing this kind of stuff 
They're fearful of opening up and dealing with sin and insecurity because it's just more comfortable to coexist. I think that's very honest. Because once you lift the lid, you begin to examine your heart and what's really going on and what you're really like and where you're really finding value and you open this whole can of worms and it's messy. And I get that. But have a look again at Galatians 2.20 and see where the verse ends. If you're anything like me with my amnesia, you've probably forgotten it already. He loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see, it means that we can trust him with our sin because he loves us. That is the antidote to the fear of dealing with our own sin in our own hearts. If Jesus loved you, if he gave himself for you, if you've been raised again with him, then you can trust him. You can trust him with your life, your issues of image and value and comparisons and insecurities and great dots and golden stars. You can trust him and you be honest with him. He's like the expert heart surgeon. He's there with a scalpel. But he's not just operating on the anonymous patients. He's operating on one he intensely loves and is committed to. And to one for whom he gave himself. Let's pray. Loving Father, you know the tendency of our hearts to find our, our worth in how many grey dots and golden stars we have. You know how easily we, we look for value elsewhere, outside of being made in your image, Psalm 8, or being recreated by your son, Galatians 2. We pray that you would help us. And we pray that these things wouldn't just simply be ideas, but that they would roll over into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. They would change how we see ourselves and how we see those around us. Thank you that you love us. Help us, please, to, to trust you and so be honest and open about the reality of our hearts. We long that you would be at work in us as individuals, in us as a church. We pray that we might be the kind of community where vulnerability is possible because we know how much you love us and so we love each other. Change us, we pray. Captivate us afresh by the glory of your Son. Would we treasure him? Would we, would we go to him because we see how incredible he is? And so then would you change us through that encounter? In his precious name we pray. Amen.